Hi, my name is Mark Kelly. I'm one of the leaders here at City Church Leeds, and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. We hope that it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. For more information about us, please visit citychurchleeds.net or find us on all the usual social media websites. Take care and enjoy what's coming up. With me, so we're continuing our, our Gospel of Luke series. I'm number three, uh, and I'm going to be. The title of today is Hearers and Doers. So the Gospel of Luke, Hearers and Doers, and uh, I'm going to focus purely on four verses from Luke six, and I'm going to get try and get into the truths of what these four verses say, what Jesus says in them. And so let's get straight to it. So Luke six and verses forty six to 49 not 38 like for some reason I've written on that slide (laughs) so 46 to 49 it was late at night so let's read together I'm reading from the Amplified why do you call me Lord Lord and do not practice what I tell you for everyone who comes to me and listens to my words in order to heed their teaching and does them I will show you what he is like He is like a man building a house who dug and went down deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the torrent broke against that house and could not shake it or move it because it had been securely built or founded on a rock. But he who merely hears and does not practice doing my words is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation against which the torrent burst. And immediately it collapsed and fell, and the breaking and ruin of that house was great. Wow, okay. I've taken those, those verses, and I've, I've split them into three quite strong statements. And so in verse 36, uh, 46, I'm going to say that Jesus asks quite a damning question. He asks quite a damning question. And in verse 47, Jesus calls for decisive action. He calls for decisive action. And in verses 48 and 49, he gives a dramatic illustration. That's quite a dramatic illustration in verses 48 and 49. So I'm going to go through those three three things. So first up, verse 46, Jesus asks a damning question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not practice what I tell you. The massive challenge that Jesus is confronting us with here, where is his lordship in our lives? Where is his lordship in our lives? So let's put it into context. Jesus has just finished delivering the greatest sermon in history, what most folks call the Sermon on the Mount, And he's talked to a great crowd gathered around him about the kingdom of God and how to inherit it. He's talked about deep matters of time and eternity and the profoundest truths. Yet he's explained it in the simplest of words and ideas. But, and there there is a but, he's very much aware of those listening in this this massive crowd who are just onlookers and who are just observers. 
Uh, these guys might nod their heads in agreement. They probably even say amen in the most appropriate places. And if you ask them that what they believe, they'd probably most likely answer, we follow the great rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. But for all of that, Jesus' teaching had no radical impact on their lives. Just go with me. Just imagine that. And I'm going to ask you, how many times, how many times have we been sat listening to a talk, and I very much include myself in this, a sermon, you know, probably like this one that I'm preaching to you right now, where we've nodded our heads at the right time. Everybody nod their heads. Nod your heads. It's good nodding. And maybe you've shouted out in agreement when prompted. Go on, amen. But by the time we get home, by the time we get home, we realize we didn't really take it all in. And we have to remind ourselves by listening to it or watching it again. The big frustration that comes through, and, 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 and this is what Jesus is really getting at, is that when lives aren't changed, even, even a little bit, by us choosing not to let what is taught impact and challenge our thinking, or rather not investing back into the word that was given out. Because preaching, it's a two-way street. So as I talk to you and as I expand some truths of what I've seen and what I've got out of Scripture here, the two-way street is you've got to then invest time into those words. You've got to take time out of your busy schedules to think, okay, what was Mark saying? Or whoever. What were they saying? And how can I let that impact my life? How can I let that challenge me? What do I need to go away with? And go, I've got to think about that a little bit more. You may end up disagreeing with the preacher. As long as it's not fundamental, that's kind of, that's fine. You know, if we're talking about eschatology, you may disagree with some things about end times, but that doesn't really matter. But at least you've made the effort. At least you've made it a two-way street and you've invested your time in listening to what has been said. Hopefully you'll agree with it. So we've got to say, is Jesus speaking to us today through this, this verse 46? Is he, is he pointing a finger? Is he prodding people, those of us who don't take our Christian walk beyond this Sunday morning meeting? Is he, is he challenging us that when we've, when we've read our daily devotion, when we close our Bibles, and we say, thank you, Lord, and we head off to work or we head off to school, and then we do nothing with that biblical word, forgetting all that we've read probably by the time we reach the front gate. Jesus ends this great sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, with, the, with this appeal. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not practice what I tell you? So these people that have gathered around, these people that have listened to these truths, these listen, people that have listened to these deep, deep things of eternity, yet he knows, he knows there are people in that crowd who aren't putting into practice what the greatest preacher who has ever lived has said. So can we all agree right now that if Jesus is the Lord of our lives, there must be an obedience to what he has to say? Can we agree with that? That if Jesus really is the Lord of our lives, that there's an obedience to what he has to say. 
This, this passage in Luke corresponds to, uh, and again, you might want to look in your, in your Bibles, but it'll be up there hopefully, Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23. You can read it with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and driven out demons in your name and done mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them openly, publicly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who act wickedly, disregarding my commands. Have you grasped the seriousness of what he's saying? We've probably read these verses over and over and over again if you've been a believer for a long time, but really grasp what he's saying. You who act wickedly, disregarding my commands. Now, three things strike me right between the eyes about these poor people who are going to stand bewildered before Christ on the day of judgment. And this is that day when when Christ returns and calls everyone to him and considers their earthly record. That's, That's the day of judgment. Three things strike me. The first is this. These guys cry, Lord, Lord. Now, they're obviously ones who thought they were all right. Oh, yeah. They they, uh, they knew the lingo. They're in the the know. They've called themselves his followers. They've said the right things. There's a a parable that Jesus told of, of ten virgins, five that were wise and five that were foolish. And the foolish virgins in this story returned from trimming their lamps to find that they'd missed the bridegroom's, and and that's Jesus's arrival. And they pounded on the door and cried, Lord, Lord! But they weren't ready. They thought they were going to be at the wedding, but they weren't ready. They weren't watching for when he came. Secondly, there were many of them Jesus says, many will say to me. And that word many is the Greek word poloi. And this is the same word to describe the multitudes that flocked to listen to Jesus. Many multitudes will say to me, Lord, Lord. And yet, it is the same word that's used in our English phrase, the hoi poloi. And I've no idea how that came to go from multitudes to kind of, you know, describing the, the wealthy and the upper class and the rich gathering together, the, the hoi polloi. And see, finally, let's note what Jesus says that they will claim. We've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done wonders in your name. Now, these are all good things. But all those things, those three things, are just side issues from the main attraction, which is Jesus and your relationship with him. Jesus says the real and most central issue is, I never knew you. There does seem to be uh, something going on, and there seems to be many in the worldwide church today that are becoming really taken up with these, in quotes, side issues. Unfortunately, I've, I've read articles from folks who give these kind of things more priority than they do the Scripture. And look, we, we need God's Word. We need his, his prophetic Word in His church today. 
And I, and I, I thank God for the prophetic gifts that are at work in this church and in the wider body around Leeds. But I say this, we most definitely shouldn't seek after them in place of the plain teaching of the Word of God. God's Word is our guide. And prophetic word, a lot of the time, just confirms what God is already showing us anyway. We've also got a focus in the church today on, on deliverance ministry, as well as seeking other signs and other wonders. And like I've just said, these are good, and they are needed, and they are vital. But we need to always be aware not to put such massive emphasis on particular parts of Scripture that we've become all involved with some side issue that takes away our attention from simply following Jesus. Jesus said, and this is recorded in Mark 16 and 16, 17, and these attesting signs will accompany those who believe. But he also said in Matthew 12, verse 39, that an evil and adulterous generation, a generation morally unfaithful to God, seeks and demands a sign. So family, I say to you, we don't follow after signs and wonders. They follow us as we follow him. They follow us as we follow him. We've got to understand that from Matthew 7, 21 and 23, is that miracles do not necessarily mean that God approves of the person who performs them. Did you know that? Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5, reveals that God may actually allow miracles to test his people to see whether they really love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul, or whether they'll just clamor after anyone who seems to have power. So I say to you, don't look to signs and wonders as a proof of any ministry or preacher or prophet or whatever. Don't look to them. I'll give you some examples. God used a wicked fella in Numbers 23 called Balaam. He even used his donkey to speak. There was a high priest by the name of Caiaphas used by God to prophesy that Jesus would die for all the people. That's in John 11. But you wouldn't have wanted to follow him. The magicians of Pharaoh's court in Egypt copied many of the miracles that Moses commanded. And the sons of Siva in Acts 19 cast out demons. Look up these things for yourself. I'm not going into detail. I want you to go and investigate for yourself those things. We just simply need to be careful and mindful, sensitive to God's voice when listening to folks and examine then carefully what, what do we believe. It's that two-way street that I'm talking about. So coming back to Matthew 7, it says there will be many who cry, Lord, Lord. But Jesus' reply to them will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who act wickedly, disregarding my commands. In, in other translations, the second half of this sentence is written as, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people, Jesus says, are lawless. These people who are referring to him as Lord, Lord, 
These are people who prophesy, people who cast out demons, people who do wonders. And Jesus says, they're lawless. I'm not saying this. The Scripture is saying this. This is plain. I'm not just giving you my opinion. This is what Scripture says. This is what Jesus says. Let's come back to that verse that we began with in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not practice what I tell you? What a tragedy it must be for any person to have in their hands the teaching of Jesus, the, the living word of God, but then to lay aside its instruction to follow these side issues, majoring on the minors and neglecting the basics of growing in a relationship with Jesus, following him. It's really simple stuff. So I'm going to ask the question, does this really happen? What I've just described, does it happen today? Does it happen now? Can we chase after other things even though we're followers of Jesus? Can we get distracted from building our relationship with him? Can we? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. To do what Jesus commanded takes all of our attention and all of our energy and indeed the rest of our lives. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 talks about our relationship with our daddy God. Made possible. This thing that's made possible through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. This, this new covenant. It says this. I will put my law within them. And on their hearts I will write it. I will be their God. And they will be my people. God is leading his people. He's leading us. And desires us to walk a path of true discipleship. Not, not trendy. Not glamorous. Not some new way. But you know what? It's a simple, ancient path. And it's rugged. And it's going to be hard at times. But it's a path that is safe, tried, and true. Can I get an amen? This is our relationship with Jesus. And this is a relationship that we must extend. We must extend to others. So let's go on to the next verse. It does get better. Let's go on to the next verse. Jesus calls for decisive action. Verse 47, For everyone who comes to me and listens to my words in order to heed their teaching and does them, I will show you what he is like. Here we read of uh, this kind of action that Jesus is calling for from each one of us who would recognize him as Lord. Everyone who comes to me, comes to me. And this is the first step that we've all got to take, isn't it? The thing is that step is a continual step. It's a continual step. Every person, every one of us must keep coming back to him for ourselves. Keep coming back to him every day. Keeping Jesus as our focus and trusting only him as our Lord and as our Savior. Not, I might add, coming to every voice, taking the airwaves, or every, every voice that you see on the internet or listen to on the internet. Not the latest Christian guru. Not the latest book doing the rounds. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me. 
You turn with me to John 10, verse 4 and 5. John 10, verse 4 and 5. It will be up on the screen as well, but there's something good about looking it up for yourselves. It teaches you where things are in the Bible. I think this is a beautiful picture that should give us some encouragement. When he has brought his own sheep outside, he walks on before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never, on any account, follow a stranger, but will run away from him because they do not know the voice of strangers or recognize their call. We, as Christians, we we can get deceived. Believers can get sidetracked. And we've got to be on our guard at all times to be listening to his voice. Imagine, if you will, imagine that you're a sheep. Imagine you're a sheep. Now, answer me this question. Which are the sheep that might get picked off first, say, in, in a wolf attack? The slowest, youngest, possibly, possibly. The inquisitive, possibly, going off to look for something. The ones who are not in the middle of the flock. The ones that are not desperate to be in that crowd. The ones, so they're not the fittest, they'll be left behind because they're not getting up. If they're, if they're the youngest or the oldest, maybe they're getting sidetracked by other people. If they're the oldest, maybe they think their time is done and they don't need they're not relevance anymore within that crowd. But that's all wrong. The wolves are going to pick up those on the fringes. The ones furthest away from the shepherd. So my call to us is this. Get as close to Jesus, our shepherd, as you can. Get in right by his side. Get into the center of his flock. And I would say that's represented by this local church. Don't miss gathering together. Prioritize meeting together above all else. Do this as much and as often as you can and get to know his voice clearly. This leads me on to the second action that Jesus wants us to take. Everyone who comes to me and listens to my words, and listens to my words. We've got to be hearing what Jesus has to say. And let me ask you this simple question. Where do we find what Jesus is saying? Where do we find it? Anybody want to be brave and answer that question? It's very simple. In the Bible. In the Bible. Be bold. Good answer. The scriptures, these things, this, this, this here, it's absolutely primary and fundamental. We need to be constantly in the Word of God. So be careful not to be just reading about what others have written about scriptures. I, I'm, I'm convinced I'm convinced that if that's your main reading as a Christian, you're going you're to mature, you're going to think things through better, you're going to work things through better, you're going to communicate to others better, you're going to know where your foundation is if you get into the Word daily. Everything else, everything else is secondary. It is the number one way that God will minister into your life. In fact, I'll go so far as to say the most that God will ever say to you is in his word. The most that he will ever say to you is in 
his word. If you're not in the word, you won't hear all that he has to say. Because he won't substitute his word with something else for the benefit of busy. I'll say that again. He won't substitute his word with something else for the benefit of busy. What do I mean by that? Well, look, maybe the part of the reason for the growth of the Christian book industry over the last 15 to 20 years has maybe been because of the times in which we live, this, this fast food generation. We just don't have time to find answers in the word for ourselves. So we say, summarize it for us. Give us five steps to effective prayer. Show us 10 steps to improve our marriage, etc., etc. Do you get what I'm saying? And of course, in all this, listen to me carefully when I say this, Jesus speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And as I said right at the beginning, I am thankful that I'm part of the leadership of a church that is completely open to what he has to say. But aside from a small number of amazing encounters with Jesus and conversions to the faith that have happened without the Word of God, most of us get to know him and hear him, hear what he has to say through what is written down. God has been really gracious to us by putting his word into our hands. So I implore you, get into his word. Make it a daily habit. So the next decisive action that Jesus asked us to take, he said, where everyone who listens to my words in order to heed their teaching and does them. Does them. There's got to be a response to Jesus' words. And what's the key requirement of Christian discipleship? Let me ask you this. Is it, is it knowledge? Is it ability? Is it ministry gifting? Is it vision? Is it anointing? No, it's not. It's not that none of these things aren't good. They're very, very good. But absolutely central is obedience. Everything else, everything flows from being when we are being obedient. All the talk and all the good intentions in the world, they're no substitute for just one moment of obedience. Great knowledge is no substitute. So-called spirituality is no substitute. In fact, there is no true spirituality without simple obedience. Living the life that Jesus laid down for us to live. Following his footsteps and obeying his commands. Jesus says, come to me, hear my words and do them. So we come on to the third and this final point. Jesus gives a dramatic illustration. So verse 48 and 49. He is like a man building a house who dug down and went deep and laid a foundation against the rock. And when a flood arose, the torrent broke against that house and could not shake it or move it because it had been securely built or founded on a rock. But he who merely hears and doesn't practice doing my words is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation, against which the torrent burst and immediately, immediately it collapsed and fell. And the breaking and ruin of that house was great. Jesus loved, he loved to talk in pictures. 
He, he was a complete master at it. And some of Jesus in pictures can make an impression on us forever. And in the picture from these two verses, Jesus contrasts for us um, the image of a house built with, with solid rock foundations to a house built with no foundations except for the shifting sands. And again, like I said, there's probably a number of us here this morning. We've read these verses over and over again a number of times, and you've probably heard it preached about a number of times. And, you know, I'm sure there are songs written about it. I was trying to get these guys to remember a song. Um, and Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All of the ground is shifting sands. That's all right, I won't get you to sing, but thank you for investigating it. I can think of a friend of mine rejigged that song, actually, at Bible school. We've, um, do you know, we might sing it at the end. We might do. Yeah. We've talked a lot recently about foundations, haven't we? Have you, have you got that thread coming through? Last Sunday, it was mentioned in, our, in, in the leadership team meetings we've been having. It's been mentioned and in our life groups. But certainly in our life group, we've been talking about foundations. And, uh, We've talked about not letting those foundations go to ruin, haven't we? But actually regirding them, reminding ourselves of them, and knowing that with enough stability, we can move forward into a somewhat unknown but exciting future with God walking right beside us. Uh, laying foundations, it's, it's tough, and it's, it's long, and it's hard. And at times, it's a real exacting process. And I've heard that the building of a house, the longest part of the building, of the, the building process is, is putting in those foundations and making them rock solid. There can't be any shortcuts when you're doing that. You can't, you can't do that. Otherwise, you're just building on shifting sands. Jesus challenges his followers here to, to lay down their lives only upon bedrock foundations the foundations of his word. If you come to me and hear my sayings and put them into practice, you're like a man building a house upon deeply dug bedrock foundations. And we, we just can't afford to skimp on these foundations for our lives. There is no substitute. There's simply no substitute for obedience to the great priorities that are given to us through his word. And we can get sidetracked on occasion, and we can begin going after these side issues that I talked about earlier. But when we realize what we're doing, we can come right back, sort out the foundation of our lives, and start to work out those right priorities. If we're looking at God's Word and, and its priorities, here are some of the things that, that you'll find pop up constantly. Holiness. Reading His Word. Prayer, fellowship with the body, and winning the lost by simple witness. Let me ask you this question. How many of you feel that you've got these things sorted? No more growth needed. You don't need to do it. Oh, you, you, you're done. How many? Nobody stuck their hand up. That's a relief. I would suggest that most Christians, all Christians, would say no, that we haven't arrived yet even with these basic things. So don't find us, let's not find ourselves chasing complicated theological rabbits when there's so much to do on the basics. 
Jesus said that the foundations determine how the house will stand. And do you know what, to the casual observer, both the house on the rock and for a moment the house on the sand, they look alike. Both quite impressive in their own way. But what makes the difference? It's when the storm comes. It's when the storm hits. Jesus said that when the storm came and beat the house on the rock, it couldn't be shaken and it stood firm. But when the storm came to the house built quickly on the sand, it collapsed, broke up just as quickly and fell into ruin. And what are, the, what are these storms? What storms must we face? These are the storms of life, the disasters that happen, the issues that we face, the stresses that we come under. And most of us here will have experienced some of these things. Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. And when we think of the pain and the suffering that he went through, this must mean that there'll be times in our lives when it ain't going to all smell of sweetness and roses. As we live this Christian life, things come our way. Persecution will come as we stand on faith with boldness and proclaim the name of Jesus. This might surprise you, but Christianity is now officially the most persecuted religion in the world. Now, we, we might not experience hardships and death for our faith in our little corner of the globe, but certainly they are stories of, of, of devastation heaped upon our Christian brothers and sisters in other nations. Iran is one such country I can think of. Search the web and have check out Sudan and see what's happening there to our Christian brothers and sisters. In fact, just recently, just over the last few days, we've heard about ISIS, you know, the, the, the Islamic group that has taken over large parts of Iraq. You've read about that, heard about that? They've said to all the Christians of their, in their Islamic state, you either convert, you pay a heavy tax, or you go. Otherwise, we will kill you. How many Christian countries say that to their Muslim citizens? In fact, Pat, could you come up? Because Pat was just, she just wants to pray, and I'd like us to join in prayer for these guys and these other countries. Yeah. And then I'm just going to say a little bit more. I didn't know that Mark so just, just go to the mic there. I didn't know that Mark was going to talk about this this morning, but I asked him before we started if we could pray, because I've been following the news on the BBC, and I'm sure lots of you have, about what's been going on in Iraq. And um, BBC International News page this morning, Iraqi Christians flee after ISIS issue an ultimatum in Mosul. This is one of the major cities in the north. Um, a statement issued by the Islamic State in Iraq. This is um, a, a, a state that's been declared by ISIS, this extreme militant um, Muslim group. They want to set up what's called an Islamic Caliphate across Iraq and across areas of Syria and the, the wider Levant area. 
And as Mark said, Christians were asked to comply by midday on Saturday or face death if they did not leave this city. ISIS has control of large parts of Syria and Iraq and said last month it was creating this Islamic caliphate and they issued this edict that people had to either leave, pay this tax in gold or be killed and they were marking the houses of Christians with a mark so that people would know where to find them to execute them if they didn't leave. And I've been, I don't know if any of you are following, but I follow um, Canon Andrew White on Twitter and on Facebook. If you want to know what's going on there and in the wider Middle East, he's a very good source of information. He's the Anglican pastor of the church in Baghdad. And he's been talking for months and months and months about what's going on there and the way that people are suffering, people in general and more recently Christians. And he's asking for the Christian community in the UK to stand with the people of Iraq and of the wider Middle East. He has a ministry of reconciliation. and He's very influential also in the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict as well. So I think it would just be good if we stood together to ask God for mercy, really, and for grace in this situation, and to just stand with the people of Iraq and Syria who are suffering so terribly, and also particularly for Christian brothers and sisters. Father, we declared this morning that every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory and every knee shall bow at your throne in worship. And you will be exalted, O God, and your kingdom will not pass away, O ancient of days. Yes, Jesus. And Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq and in Syria and that wider region, Father, particularly this morning, who are under so much trial and persecution, and many of them have literally just fled their homes and their jobs and their lives with their families and just the clothes that they're standing up in. Father God, we can't imagine how awful it is, but Lord God, we're asking you for your grace and mercy. Yes, Lord. Lord God, we're praying and asking that the powers in the West who were so wary of becoming involved because of the wars that we've had will not stand on the sidelines and see these terrible things happen, but will use their influence in every way that they can. Lord God, the governments in Europe and America particularly, Lord God, we pray that there will be a determined effort to bring this crisis to an end, Lord yes. God, and that peace and stability will prevail. So, Father, we ask that you would meet the practical needs of people for shelter, for food, for health care, for sanitation. Lord, will you just love on your people, Lord God, yes. and protect them in this situation. And we, we pray for the legitimate authorities of Iraq, Father God, that you will strengthen them, strengthen people of goodwill, people of peace, peace, people of determination to establish democracy, Father God. We pray that you will strengthen the government, yes. Lord God. And we pray for 
Canon Andrew White and for his family and for his staff in Baghdad who've also had to flee and for his organization to bring reconciliation. And we ask that you would empower and strengthen and raise up their voice, Lord God, and their influence. Lord God, that peace will come for all the peoples of that area and that region, Lord God. We declare that your kingdom will come, that your kingdom will not pass away, O ancient of days. Lord, there have been Christians, Christ followers in that region since biblical times, Lord God. And we thank you that your word says your kingdom will not pass away, but will advance. It will never end. It will never cease from growing. Right now, Lord God, we're asking that you would pour out your mercy and your grace and your protection upon your people, Lord God. Cause them even to know today, Lord God, that they are loved by you and protected and hedged round. Send your angels to do war and battle on their behalf, Lord God. We ask in the name of Jesus that his name and his name alone, Jesus the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of all, will be raised up and glorified. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. So compared to that, compared to these other countries in the world, and China is another country in which the Christian church supposedly has freedom, but it certainly does not. It's heavily regulated by the authorities. Even compared to those, when you compare ourselves to those countries, our, our, our persecution here is, 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 is simple disappointment and, and simple hardship. Some people would argue that there is certainly no persecution of Christianity happening in the UK, but I guess that would depend on your definition of persecution. But even if you just take that, we've got simple disappointments and simple hardships. If the foundation isn't right, the house won't stand. Because even though the persecution in this country isn't life-threatening, what that actually means for us is that we need to work doubly hard to make sure that our foundations are as solid so that we can easily, so that we can depend on God. Because if our foundations aren't solid, we, we will depend less on God. And we'll depend more on money and property and, and just general consumerism. In, in those countries and those places where standing firm in your faith means torture and maybe death, a relationship with Jesus is the only thing that keeps them going every day. Whereas in this country, we are distracted. We are tempted. We have lots of other things that could fill that hole where Jesus is supposed to reside. So we need to make doubly hard. We need to be doubly sure that our foundations are rock solid. So that when these foundations, and they're solid, and when the storm comes, large or small, you're not swept away and you're able, you're able to stand firm. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.11 says this, for no other foundation can anyone lay 
that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Wow. So family, make sure that your foundations are being laid squarely and solidly upon Jesus Christ and his word. Pay attention to detail. Leave no stone unturned in examining your life to see if there is anything that's not in accordance with God's word. I've got to look for that. But if you do that, if you do that, you too, you'll be like this wise man building his house upon the rock. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say, I'm sorry. We give second chances to anyone. We also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. And we give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we are